This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Elena Clark about her new book, Trauma and Truth, Teaching Russian Literature on the Chechen Wars, published by Academic Studies Press in January of this year. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for joining me. And can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I have kind of a typical and kind of an atypical background. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor of Russian at Wake Forest University, uh, which is a pretty normal thing to be doing in academia, but I got there in kind of an unusual way. Uh, I don't have any um, actual Russian like heritage, despite my name. Uh, you might think that I'm Russian, but I'm not. And um, but my my parents were very interested in Russia, and they studied Russian in college. And um, following the collapse of the USSR, uh, my father was actually posted to Russia with his job, uh, which was for a private American, co- sorry, a private American company. And uh, so I lived in Russia for a while as a teenager, and that's how I learned Russian. Uh, and then when I came back to the U.S. and started college, I realized that I already spoke Russian, which was like a big skill that a lot of people didn't have. Um, so I ended up getting a B.A. in international studies with a minor in Russian at UNC Charlotte. Uh, and then I was like, I'm never, never going to grad school Uh but then, famous last words, I got an MA uh, in Russian translation from Columbia University. And then I was like, I'm definitely not getting a PhD. Uh, once again, famous last words, um, I ended up getting a PhD in Slavic uh, languages and literatures from UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and then I taught at various places for a little while before ending up here at Wake Forest. Um, as far as sort of how I ended up uh, writing a book about Chechnya and Chechen war literature, it was similar and that that was not the trajectory that I intended to be on at all. I was really interested in Finland in grad school and I went to Finland a couple of times. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on the 19th century metaphysical poet Yevgeny Borodinsky, um, who spent a lot of time in Finland and was known in, uh, in amongst Russian literature as the Bard of Finland. And I was planning to write my first post-dissertation book project, something about Finland and Russian literature. Uh, but then uh, things took a turn. I had students start asking me about uh, Chechnya and literature about Chechnya. And I had been incorporating this into my classes for various reasons. Uh, and I looked into it and I realized that there was nothing about it. There was almost no scholarship about it. So I was like, well, I should write an article about it. And then I wrote a hundred thousand word book manuscript. (laughs) And here we are now today. Well, congratulations on the book. And, you know, I I don't think this was, I had planned for this to come up later. So what context did the students ask for you to to talk about Chechnya? Um, Was it 
and uh, you know because of uh, things that were happening in uh, uh with like the the opera house or uh you know the war on terrorism or was it coming from a different place uh so in the russian program at wake forest like a lot of russian programs we have a lot of rotc cadets and in our rotc program here apparently they study the chechen war and so in, in other classes not in the russian classes but in other classes and so some of the students were trying to do projects on the Chechen wars, and they asked me about you know, book recommendations. And separately from that, I had been teaching the book One Soldier's War, which is one of the books they profile in my book, um, in my first year seminars. So I recommended that book, um, and some of them became very interested in it and started asking, you know, they wanted to do final projects for their other ROTC classes uh, about that book or about the Chechen Wars. And that's when they started asking me for scholarship. And that's when I looked into it and realized that there wasn't very much at all. Thank you. And um, well, why don't we take a, a couple of steps back? We've talked about or referred to the Chechen Wars a couple of times. And so you can give our listeners some wider historical background on Chechnya, followed by the context surrounding the Chechen Wars, and then what has been happening in Chechnya since? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Chechnya is in the North Caucasus, and uh, the Caucasus, uh, for those who don't know where it is, which is a lot of people, uh, is this narrow strip of land between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And they've got to the Russia to the north and Turkey and Iran to the south, and they've got a sea on either side. It's this mountainous region um and so you have this this kind of meeting of three empires there russia the ottoman empire the persian empire uh you've got very constrained uh geography mountainous geography uh very diverse uh group group diverse groups of people living there um you've got um christians you've got muslims um and it's this sort of highly volatile um region highly volatile and diverse region sort of like the balkans in that way um and in the 18th and 19th centuries uh russia the russian empire at the time was on its quest to get a warm water port uh and they fought a series of wars to try and gain access to the black sea uh this involved sort of moving through the caucasus and uh involved particularly uh including moving to chechnya which chechnya is one of these little regions within the caucasus like i said it's a very diverse region um chechnya is one of the sort of little nations within it uh and so the russian empire at the time essentially conquered the north caucasus and a lot of the caucasus uh, including chechnya uh the chechens were notoriously difficult to conquer in the 18th and 19th centuries. They were um, always sort of the most hot-headed, obstreperous, and aggressive and warlike nations that the Russian Empire had to deal with then. But the Russian Empire did more or less subdue them and install the fort of Grozny, which is currently the capital of Chechnya. And Grozny means threatening, by the way. That's, they just, they named their fort threatening to remind everyone what a threat, or to remind the, the local populace what a threat it was. And so... Uh, Chechnya, uh, these people are not Slavic. Um, it's a majority Muslim region. Uh, they never really saw themselves as Russian, um, and they kept, you know, kind of wanting to leave. Uh, they kind of wanted to leave the Soviet Union when it was formed, but were brought back into the Soviet Union and kept in the Soviet Union. 
uh, but there was always a, a desire to leave. And around 1990, 1991, when we had the Soviet Union starting to split apart, um, there was a general, Jokhara Dudayev, who was Chechen. And, and it's one of these things where the Chechens are an oppressed minority, but they also, a disproportionate number of Chechens, it seems to be, uh, occupied positions of power within the Soviet and now the Russian system. So it's one of those situations. So Jokhara Dudayev was an Air Force general who was stationed in Estonia, and he witnessed the uh, Baltics' fairly peaceful and successful bid for independence. And this inspired him to leave the Air Force, go back to Chechnya, and declare Chechnya independent in 1991. Uh, but there's a, there was a big issue that the Baltics were separate republics within the Soviet Union, and Chechnya was not. It was a region within Russia. So uh, legally, it was on a very different footing. Um, and but it declared itself independent in 1991. And for about three years, it was in this kind of weird limbo state where it considered itself to be independent, but it wasn't really. People still used the ruble. They still had their Soviet and then Russian passport. Uh, at the end of 1994, things Yeltsin decided that things were had gone too far, had gone far enough. And he wanted to have, quote unquote, a small victorious war and launched uh, a war to bring Chechnya back under full control of the Russian federal government. And it didn't go very well. That was for Russia. That was the first Chechen war, and it ran from 1994 to 1996. Um, and the Russian army was, the Russian military was in uh, really bad shape at that time, and the war did not go very well for them. And it ended up with the Khas of Yurt Accords and de facto kind of semi-victory for the Chechen forces. And there were another three years of um, kind of this limbo state where Chechnya was sort of independent, but not entirely independent. Um, and then in 1999, um, a, a group of um, Islamist fundamentalist radicals led by a Chechen military leader uh, invaded Dagestan from Chechnya. And that plus um, this wave of apartment bombings that swept through Russia in the fall of 1999 led to the start of the Second Chechen War in which Russian federal forces um, came in again to pacify the region. And the Second Chechen War um, was longer and even more brutal than the first one. And you had active fighting um, for sort of about a year or so at the beginning, and then a lengthy period of cleansing operations and sort of slowly bringing it back under federal control. It kind of ended around 2009. And so those are the two current wars that uh, the literature that I'm looking at um, is concerned with. Uh, since then, Chechnya is now an autonomous republic within Russia, so it's firmly back within uh, the Russian federal system, but it is an autonomous republic within Russia. And um, it's had Ramzan Kadyrov uh, is a very important person in the Putin administration. So if you've been following the news, you've probably read statements that he's made recently. Um, it, there's uh, Chechnya, like Grozny was completely flattened during the Second War, and the, the country, the infrastructure was just horrendously destroyed. Um, Grozny at one point was considered to be, or was declared to be the most destroyed city in the world, I believe. 
Uh, and there's been a lot of rebuilding uh, and sort of attempts to kind of uh, revive the region. And I think that they've been somewhat successful. There, there has been a lot of infrastructure rebuilding. Uh, however, uh, the Kadyrov, um administration or regime or whatever you want to call it has been fairly repressive. Uh, there's been a move to um, revive Chechen culture, uh, which could seem very welcome, and I think is very welcome to a lot of people, but that has also come hand in hand with uh, a very repressive um, interpretation of Islam that is being um, kind of enforced on the populace. And so uh, Chechnya continues to be a region plagued with uh, repression and violence. Uh, the situation for women is particularly bad and for LGBT people it's particularly bad. Um, approximately a quarter of the population um, has kind of fled the country in the last 20 years. Uh, so it's been heavily depopulated and it was already a very small nation. And uh, there have been a series of high-profile cases of uh, most recently uh, like uh, basically capture, torture, and execution of men who were suspected of being gay. Uh, which was like a high-profile thing that happened a couple of years ago. And so it's it's sort of recovered, but it's still uh, got a lot of problems. And um, the outlook for, you know, sort of its revival is a flourishing um, nation of, it's, you know, it's, it's got as a unique uh, Muslim culture within Europe. And its sort of outlook for uh, flourishing and being a, a real contribution to European culture is, I think a little bit bleak um so it, it's kind of a downbeat story but that's kind of where we are now thank you elena and you know considering the the brutality of, of the wars which you know we'll get into a little more later um what was it about chechnya that i maybe there's many reasons um that russia wanted to incorporate it so strongly into the the russian federation um, yeah, so uh, I think I read several scholars um, who study the politics and history of the region say that the war, the Chechen wars were sort of overdetermined. There were lots and lots of reasons behind them. Um, and there are a couple of, of factors. I mean, one factor was just like it was and it is legally a part of Russia and Russia didn't want um, these, uh, you know, didn't want breakaway regions. And so, and they were concerned that there would be kind of a domino effect and that if Chechnya declared independence, then they would lose Pakistan, then they would lose, I don't know, Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, that they would start losing more and more territories. Uh, so they were concerned about this domino effect of, you know, you let one breakaway region break away and then more and more start breaking away. Um, also, um, it. Uh, very rich in oil. So it's a small landlocked region, but it has a lot of natural resources. And one of the things the author Anna Politkovskaya, um, another one of the authors I profile in my book, writes about is how much oil there is there and how um, the corruption around oil was a big part of the wars. So um, it's got this oil. Um, countries frequently don't like to let oil-rich regions slip out of their fingers. Uh, so there was that. And uh, there was also, I think, just uh, bad blood or, or poor personal relations between uh, Yeltsin and Dudayev. And there was sort of this clash of personalities. And Yeltsin wanted to assert his 
dominance, for want of a better word, and make sure that Judaev didn't get one over on him. Thank you. Yeah, I, I know uh, from reading, uh, <laughs> I have to say this a few times, Paul Kulskaya's uh, works that, uh, you know, talked a lot about um, oil and the, and the corruption, like you were saying. Um, so I was, so if we take a, another step, you know, backward again uh, to, to the cover of your book uh, and, and the title, can you talk about whose trauma you're referring to and, and whose truth? And also, uh, what is the literature of trauma that you refer to in your book? And whose literature did you choose? You've, you've already given us uh, some insight, but whose other else literature did you choose to survey for your book? Uh, this is a lot of questions. I know, with, why did you choose these authors over possible others? And, and how are these authors different, both in terms of who they are as individuals and their experiences and in terms of their writing styles? Yeah, so um, Trauma and Truth, I was looking for an alliterative title um, as that's what came to me. Um, and uh, But the trauma is both the individual trauma of the authors um, and also the collective trauma of the former USSR. And I sort of talk about how you have uh, the, the books that I profile, I argue that they demonstrate uh, both like individual trauma, but this can also be extrapolated into this kind of collective trauma. And the truth, again, is their truth that they're trying to say. You could you could also maybe say it's a collective truth that they're trying to sh uh, share. And they all had, they all felt a strong uh, compulsion, I would say, to share their truth on behalf of the group that they were representing. Uh, so that's sort of that trauma and that truth, and that's related to the literature of trauma uh, which I used uh, what's called trauma theory to examine the works. And this literature of trauma is defined um, by the scholar Kali Tal as um, it's defined by uh, who its authors are and it's literature about trauma written by people who have experienced trauma, basically. Um, and so all of these authors that I chose had a direct experience of the war zone. And there are other authors who have also written really good works about the Chechen wars that are, I highly recommend, uh, but they did not necessarily have direct experience of the war zone. These, the authors that I chose all had direct experience of the war zone. And so I could argue that they were writing the literature of trauma uh, and they were talking about either their personal or their nation's collective trauma, and they were trying to do what Paul calls telling and retelling um, the story of the trauma and bearing witness to the trauma. So there's this strong um, urge in all of them to bear witness to, again, their individual and the nation's collective trauma. And um, trying to think about the next, what was the next section of the question? <laughs> uh how are the how are these individuals different and uh, their writing styles as well? Yeah, so the four I ended up picking four main authors to look at. So Anna Polikovskaya, um, Mikhail Elvin, uh, Arkady Babchenko, and Zakhar Pridyapin. And Anna Polikovskaya, uh, she was an investigative journalist for Novaya Gazeta, uh, which is a big independent uh, news source in Russia. And I guess the the editor won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, was it last year? Uh, last year, the year before, pretty recently. Um, and uh, she was an investigative journalist who specialized in stories about the Second Chechen War, and 
She was also a civilian and a woman, and she really focused on um, the stories, uh, women's stories and civilian stories, children's stories, stories of the elderly. She had a number of pieces on disabled people, um, and she wrote very much from a sort of a woman's perspective. Uh, so I included her, um, and then Mikhail Eldin uh, was Chechen, and he was first a journalist and then a combatant on the Chechen side. So I have uh, both Russian and Chechen authors. And uh, I look at his memoir, The Sky Wept Fire, about his experiences uh, as a combatant on the Chechen side. Um, Arkady Babchikov was also a, and is also a journalist. Uh, he fought on the Russian side. Um, as a as a first as a conscript and then as a contract soldier, um, I look at his memoir, um, One Soldier's War, uh, and so again he's Russian and he's a combatant. So I have uh, you know male and female perspectives, Russian and uh, Chechen perspectives, civilian and combatant perspectives, um, and then Zakhar Prilepin uh, also fought on the Russian side. Uh, as, you know he was a combatant on the Russian side, and he. Uh, wrote a kind of a semi-autobiographical novel, Pathologies, uh, loosely based on his, or inspired by his experiences um, in uh, the First Chechen War and then in Dagestan in 1999. And so I have this mixture of fiction, non-fiction, uh, you know, sort of invest, and then in books of non-fiction, there's investigative journalism, and then there's kind of like impressionistic memoir, uh, and then these different perspectives, Russian, Chechen, male, female, civilian, combatant. So it, I think it's a fairly diverse group as far as their perspectives, uh, but they're all, as I argue, writing a literature of trauma based on their firsthand experiences of the war zone. Okay, thank you. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about the the photo that's on the on the cover. I, I like to ask my uh, the people I interview um, you know, about the covers of their book and their input. And um, could you describe this photo? And uh, when someone picks up your book, uh, what do you hope they see in the photo? Yeah, so the photo is a picture of a Russian soldier in uniform, and he's sitting in the back of a truck. Uh, Maybe not entirely obvious that he's sitting in the back of a truck. He's obviously sitting in something, but I know that it's the back of the truck. Uh, and he's holding his rifle and sort of staring off into the distance with this kind of thousand-yard stare. Uh, and it's actually a still from her movie Captive by Alexei Mushitin. Um, and I picked it and suggested it. when I was asked, you know, for do you have any images you think might work? And this is one of the ones that I suggested um, because I thought it really showed that kind of uh, thousand-yard stare, you know, despair of the uh, highly traumatized combat veteran, and the the movie is a, is about um, it's about the Chechen wars. It's it's set in the Chechen wars, and it's a reworking of the prisoner of the Caucasus sort of basic theme set in the modern Chechen wars. And I'm more than, and I'd also say that I like it because it shows this kind of you know gaze, this thousand yard stare. But it's also especially the way they cropped it and actually made. The layout for the cover design it really shows him as captive and there's this whole theme of being captive or a prisoner of the caucasus in russian literature and uh, russian culture and i think it conveys that really well um and i want people to you know sort of see that you know that kind of that despair and that captivity but also I mean, I think he looks very human the actor did a great job um i think he looks very human and i want people to see this 
humanity, and I think especially in the West, uh, we have a really hard time seeing uh, Russian combatants as human, uh, but they are, and they share very similar feelings and experiences to American combatants. Um, and one of the things I talk about a little, but that I've thought a lot, all about a lot, is the similarities between the Chechen wars and the West's global wars on terror and how these are kind of like two sides of the same war or something like that. Um, and so I hope that people sort of see this and they see, you know, like a person looking back at them instead of a monster. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, it just makes me think of, uh, and I think I have this right, um, during the Second Chechen War, uh, you know, President Bush said something to about Putin should negotiate with the Chechens, and, and Putin said... Um, when you negotiate with Osama bin Laden, uh, we'll negotiate with the Chechens or, or something like that. Yeah, I think um, it was you, something like that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I mentioned before, I, you know, there was a period in my life where I was greatly interested in, in the Chechen wars and um, I actually started learning Russian and, and failed badly. I, I was learning on my own uh, using CDs and yeah, I only got so far uh, and didn't have anyone to communicate with. And then, uh, you know, they just dissolved quickly my my recollection um but i i did read uh some of the the translation works of, of anna politkovskaya's books a, a dirty war a small corner of hell and putin's russia um and you know as i mentioned i was i was dismayed by the brutality of the wars but it also seemed uh, almost like uh, on a personal level some of the uh violence that occurred and um you know, I couldn't understand why it was receiving so little attention. Um, you know, I, obviously some of the things, like I mentioned, the opera house got covered and there was the school siege that covered in the apartment bombings that you referred to earlier. Um, but that was all within the context of, of terrorism or the war on terror. Um, and this seemed even true when uh, Politkovskaya was an assassinated. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on any of that, um, as well as the imprisonment, excuse me, imprisonment of those who were sentenced for Politkovskaya's murder and whether any form of justice has been achieved with this. Um, yeah, so uh, I've heard, you know, I think a, a general consensus is that of the sort of, if we put Chichiana in the global wars on terror, then it was by far the most brutal, and it was definitely one of the most brutal, or these wars were some of the most brutal wars that happened in the past 20, 30 years. And that uh, what I sort of heard, like, third hand was that from people who'd experienced, who'd witnessed, from war, a war reporter who'd witnessed both, was that Iraq was bad. Iraq was terrible, but it was the second worst war. Chechnya was the worst. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot of factors um, leading into that. Um, I mean, it was, on a certain extent, a civil war. Um, and certainly a lot of the Russian combatants seemed to experience it as a civil war and that these were fellow uh, Russian-speaking citizens of Russia. And um, so for them, this was kind of this awful civil war, especially the first war. Uh, and civil wars can get really brutal uh, because there's no one you hate as much as your brother who's on the wrong side. 
Um, so there was this sort of like civil war aspect to it um, that I think probably raised the level of brutality. Um, it was also uh, being waged by uh, people who'd been already been really traumatized by the breakup of the Soviet Union and, and um, you know, were already like really sort of on edge about that. Um, on the Russian side, uh, the Russian military was struggling with a really bad problem with hazing uh, that led to extreme brutality within the ranks um, and then all probably also brutality aimed outwards at the, uh, at the people they were fighting. Um, on the Chechen side, um, especially in the Second War, um, they, they were, I mean, it's wrong, to, it's, it's, it's wrong to think of them as being motivated entirely by Islamist radicalism. They, most people were motivated by um, a, a desire for to create an independent Shijia, but they were also sort of infiltrated by Saudi Islamist radicalists, and um, they took on some of those um, uh, some of those terroristic features. Uh, and so all of that was sort of in this mix. Um, at the same time, uh, sort of tactically. Uh, the the Russian military has long had this uh, sort of cannon fodder slash scorched earth tactics, and I'm not a tactician. Uh, I only know a little bit about this, but historically, they they have used the like I said, cannon fodder slash scorched earth tactics, uh, which can lead to really high casualties. Um, and they also have a high casualty tolerance, so they're okay with high casualties. Um, and they also um, started taking on the kind of high-altitude aerial bombardments that they had uh, seen the U.S. use uh, against Yugoslavia, which they were very unhappy about. And so they combined both of those things for, uh, you know, really destructive warfare. Um, so there's sort of all of that sort of thing. And like I said, on the Chechen side, they took on some really um, horrific terrorist attacks. You mentioned the the musical, the opera house, um, and then the Beslan school, um, and, and some just really, uh, high casualty, um, terrorist attacks that were made much higher casualty by the, um, Russian military going in and, um, taking out the hostage takers, um, but killing a lot of the hostages as well, uh, as they, when they took out the hostage takers. Uh, so there was all this kind of stuff, uh, sort of all these different reasons that meant that the war was extremely violent, uh, very high casualties, uh, lots of destruction, um, extreme brutality, uh, and just sort of like on all sides all around. And um, I think you also asked uh, why, why sort of the rest of the world didn't care very much. And um, I have sort of various thoughts on that. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about like, and I, I think Polikorskaya kept asking like, why, why did the West do anything elder than the, the Chechen uh, author that I profile also asked like, why didn't the West do anything? I'm not sure that the West could have done very much realistically, uh, but they certainly didn't try very hard. Um, and I don't know if they didn't, well, they, they may have looked at it and said, I don't know that there's anything that we, we can do. And realistically, there's not a lot that they, they could have done. Um, but also, um, it, it didn't matter very much to the West. So uh, the Chechen Wars in no way threatened 
what some circles would call U.S. global hegemony. Uh, they just kept Russia tied up in this really messy internal war that kept Russia from, you, you know, it, it made it harder for Russia to uh, challenge the West um, on other things. So it was, there was, it was kind of no skin off the West's nose uh, if Russia was caught up in this long-running war. Um, and in during the first war, it was um, under Yeltsin, and Yeltsin was seen as, uh, you know, this tri you know important pillar of democracy in the former USSR. And so um, I don't think that the West was going to challenge him about a lot of what he did because they saw him as, as the main thing sort of standing between um, uh, Russia and a return of the Communist Party. And, uh, and then the second war uh, happened during the West global war on terror. And so it was seen as, um, you know, sort of two sides of the same war, like I said, and they, they, and, and Putin very much portrayed it that way. And he was very, um, he tried to be very accommodating and supportive to the West in many ways. Um, and with, you know, perhaps with a kind of an understanding that they would be accommodating and supporting about the Chechen um, wars. And so also Chechnya is far away, like most Westerners have no idea what it is, where it is or that it exists. And um, the people that the Russia was fighting were mainly Muslim. And it was really hard, I think, for Westerners to get very excited about it or uh, you know, we had a lot of our own problems going on, and it, it, in as much as anyone knew anything about it, it probably seemed like, oh yeah, they have war to fight. Of course, they're going to fight that war. Um, so there's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons, but those are some of the ones that I I kind of thought about. Um, and then turning to Politkovskaya's assassination, uh, do you want me to give a quick background on what happened to Politkovskaya? Sure. Yeah, I think that'd be helpful. Thank you. Yeah, so Polykovskaya, uh, like I said, she was a, a reporter for Novaya Gazeta, this independent and uh, news source that was highly critical of the Kremlin and continues to be highly critical of the Kremlin. And uh, she reported extensively on the Second Chechen War, and she was extremely critical of Putin um, and of Kadyrov uh, in 2000, and, and she received numerous death threats and various attacks uh, because of this. In 2006, she was investigating um, allegations of torture conducted by Chechen security forces. Uh, and apparently she had all these recordings of um, people conducting torture in Chechen. And, and, you know, and the torturers were speaking Chechen. And um, she got, you know, kind of told to stop this and she didn't. And then on, uh, let's see, October 7th, 2006, she was shot down outside of her apartment building, or it's not, I mean, in her apartment building, but outside of her apartment, um, in what was clearly in the, uh, an assassination, you know, with the kill shot to the head and the uh, Makarov pistol left by her body. And um, no one claimed responsibility at the time, uh, but later several people were arrested for it. There were actually two trials uh, in 2014. Finally, five people were sentenced, all Chechens with ties to the Chechen security forces. Uh, they were sentenced um, for organizing and conducting the hit. Um, 
And we, so they were sentenced and it's quite possible that they carried it out. Uh, but it's never been found out like who ordered the hit. Like this was clearly, pretty clearly a, an or, uh, a, a hired assassination. Like, like they didn't do this just for fun. Like someone asked them to, and we don't know who asked them to, um, because the assassin for, for various reasons, but one of because the assassination happened on Putin's birthday and just a couple days after Kadyrov's birthday, um, there's a widely held theory that this was like a birthday present to one or both of them. And uh, but we don't we don't know that. There's no, you know, substantiation of that, but this is the widely held theory. Um and we don't know, like I said, who's behind it. Um and um, the person who actually organized the hit uh, died in prison in 2017, so we can't ask him. We don't have any more chances to ask him. Uh, as far as whether justice has been done, in my opinion, um, I mean, I, I think it's quite possible that the people who are in jail were the ones who actually carried out the hit. Uh, I don't think that that could be called justice, or, or I, don't, I don't know that justice can be done because... I'm very biased and I think Politkovskaya's life was worse more than the people who carried out the hit or the people who ordered the hit. Um, and I I think, you know, if we were had to have something that resembled justice in any way, it would be to find out what actually happened, like to find out the truth of what actually happened to her, or, you know, why and who ordered the hit, why, what was going on with these allegations of torture. Um, I don't know if we'll ever find that out, but to me, that would be justice. Uh, or as close to justice as we can have, I think it would be what she would want. Um, but I don't know that that's going to happen. Thank you, Elena. Yeah. Um, and and maybe this comes back to to my next question. So I'll, I'll I'll go on to the next one and see if it ties back in. But um, you you, you had a chance to interview uh, the living authors that you surveyed, and so what was your experience like interviewing them? Um, was there anything you found especially interesting or surprising from these? interviews slash conversations. Um, and if you were to be able to ask Polkovskaya um, a question, you know, had she been alive when you were doing your research, uh, what would you have asked her? Um, yeah, so it was uh, a lot of, I don't know, fun is exactly the right word, but it was extremely rewarding to work with living authors after writing my dissertation on someone from the early 19th century. Um, and I did reach out to all the living authors and uh, in some cases their translators and also the polite close guys translator um, and an editor and everyone was very welcoming and supportive um so it's extremely rewarding um and also it's sort of my experience in general of working on war literature was that everyone i talked to uh russian american chechen whatever uh was very welcoming and supporting they were really glad that someone was working on this um, and tried to help out as much as they could. So huge thanks to everyone um, who helped me out along the way. And I was just sort of surprised and overwhelmed by how supportive and helpful people were. Um, and then uh, uh, it was also kind of intimidating, though. Um, so, for example, uh, I found it very uh, intimidating to, well, to cold, basically cold call these people. Uh, I'm not the kind of person who uh, enjoys or feels at all good about that kind of thing. Uh, so I had to overcome a lot of natural inhibition to do that. And then Zakhara Priyapin, for example, is a major literary star in Russia and also a, uh, 
an ardent uh, anti-American Russian nationalist uh, who, at the time that I was trying to interview him, was actually like in, actively engaged in the fighting in the Donbass on the uh, separatist side. Uh, so I was kind of a little bit nervous about reaching out to him, but I did, and he was actually uh, like his his team, and he were all super gracious and helped me out. You know, answered my questions, and he actually like emailed back and forth with me uh, from the front lines, and um, that was all. You know, sometimes. Sometimes you, you do things that are you're scared to do, but it, it turns out that you should have been scared of it. It was really, really good. Um, and then I was also like, uh, Mikhail Eldon has been super helpful all the way along. Uh, I was quite nervous about talking to him too, um, for all the reasons I mentioned above. And I had spent time in Russia during both the first and Chechen war, uh, first and second Chechen wars. And I had really imbibed this like deep visceral fear of Chechens. And so to actually interact with uh, a Chechen and, and, you know, I was afraid to the point where if, if I heard a Chechen accent or if I hear a Chechen accent, like the hairs rise on the back of my neck kind of thing. Uh, and so I had to kind of overcome that. And um, uh, it was really good to be able to interact and, and cre create this relationship with a Chechen person. And uh, he's been super helpful and supportive all the way along. So a huge thanks to him, too. Uh, three is what I'd like to ask Polikovskaya. Um, you know, um, there's so many questions. Uh, of course, of course, we'd all like to know what happened in the end. Um, but beyond that, I, I'd sort of, um, I could, I could also ask her. I might all, you know, my personal interest might be uh, something sort of more boring about the formal, like about the formal features of her work, and I'm very interested in the formal features of writing. And um, how, uh, for example, in this, how the formal features, so like how the structure of the work uh, parallels the mental states of the author. And um, I talk about in my book about how Polikovsky is presenting the trauma of the nation as a whole. And I think I might like to ask her, like, what, what does she think of that? What does she think about the trauma of the nation? How does she think the trauma of the nation? Should, does she think the nation is traumatized? How does she think the trauma of the nation would be best uh, represented? So I, those are some of the kind of like personal things that are interesting to me personally, things that I would ask her. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, you know, in a final question, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's currently happening with Russia and Ukraine. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the question of trauma certainly is something that, you know, um, may not have temporal boundaries. And so, you know, whether some of that trauma uh, of the nation is uh, seen today as well, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, what, were, what were some of the key things you learned from your research and what do you hope others will learn from you and your book? And similarly, uh, who is the main audience for your book? Uh, and then somewhat relatedly, sorry for giving you like questions and threes here, but you mentioned teaching a section on Chechnya in your first year seminar course. Uh, how do you approach teaching about Chechnya and how do the students respond to this? Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the key things that I learned um, was trauma theory that I, I went into this project thinking, you know, just sort of thinking like, I think there's something about trauma here. Uh, but I didn't actually know anything about trauma theory, so I actually had to learn about trauma theory, about trauma, about PTSD, the literature of trauma, war literature in general. Um, so I had to learn all of that, and um, I found it extremely interesting and enlightening, uh, but it was like a, a very steep learning curve. 
And as far as the main audience for the book, um, I mean, it is an in-depth literary analysis. Uh, I think that, you know, people who are interested in contemporary war literature, the Chechen wars, contemporary Russian literature in general, um, and contemporary Russia, I, I think um, they could all be interested in the book. Uh, I don't know that they'd want to do all of the in-depth analysis that I go into, but there's certainly areas of the book that touch on all of those things. And I think in a way that is potentially interesting to people interested in any of those things. Um, and, you know, if, if you're interested in teaching about Chechnya, like, or the Chechen war literature, you know, a, a big thing that I'm doing is just presenting here are some of the most important authors and the most important works about the Chechen wars. Like, here they are. Um, here are some things that you can do to incorporate them into the classroom. The teaching about Chechnya in my first year seminars um, or in any class, uh, I, I really do have to start with this background of like, where is it? What is it? A lot of Americans don't know that. Uh, we talk about like, why, why is it relevant? Uh, um, why do we still care? Uh, and then we talk a lot about sometimes, like depending on what the group of students, um, especially talk about this important act of bearing witness, uh, because I have had students uh, be really upset by the readings, uh, especially when soldiers were and ask like, why do we have to read this? Like, I just feel so bad and there's nothing I can do to stop this or to help anyone. Um, and so I do try to introduce them to this concept of bearing witness and um, reading about difficult things as a, as a way of showing solidarity and um, enabling the community to engage in catharsis. Um, and I also sort of try to bring it back to sort of things that they can understand um, and, and that they can sympathize with. A lot of my students, uh, so we mostly have just kind of like traditional 18-year-olds normally from uh, fairly well-to-do backgrounds. A lot of them haven't experienced uh, and don't know much about, uh, you know, things like PTSD, hazing, uh, you know, kind of like what happens to war veterans after they get back from the war. Um, and they read about this for the first time sometimes in my course, and they think that this is a purely Russian problem. And so one of the things I try to do is uh, show like how the parallels between sort of uh, the Vietnam War, the, you know, the U.S.'s experience in Vietnam, or again, the, the global wars on terror that the West has been waging and how what these Russian and Chechen authors that we're reading are experiencing is in, in some ways unique to their situation, but also in some ways very similar to what a lot of Americans uh, experienced in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on and so forth. Thank you. I think that, uh, you know, that gives them, uh, something, you know, contextual, uh, for them to, to think about in relation to, um, I have, I've not, as far as I can recall, I don't think I've, uh, taught about Chechnya in the courses. Uh, and I do, you know, uh, teach human rights courses and, and genocide courses and, you know, uh, you know, Chechnya in some ways, um, you know, could certainly uh, fall into either of those, uh, depending on the, the angle uh, that I was taking. So I will definitely uh, be thinking about your book when I uh, plan my courses for next uh, next academic year. Um, so as we start to wind down, uh, I wanted to read a quote from your book. And toward the end of your book, you write, quote, for all four of the writers surveyed here, the wars in Chechnya were hell. Their perception and treatment of it was very different, however. 
For Polkovskaya, the Chechen wars were the epitome, culmination, apogee, and defining symptom of the sickness of the Soviet and post-Soviet system, which treated its citizens as disposable objects to be exploited for grain and then tossed away. For Eldon, war was hell, but it was also a cleansing hellfire, which stripped away his civilized pretenses and allowed him to come into contact with the divine. For Prilipin, war was hell, but it was also an opportunity to experience death, life, and re rebirth birth. For Babchenko, war was perhaps the most hellish of all, as his autobi autobiographical protagonist is dragged down into it and can never fully escape, becoming instead one of its gatekeepers. How do you think Russians and Ukrainians are experiencing the current war in relation to how some experience the Chechen wars? Yeah, so um, that is a, a, a kind of a challenging question to answer um, because it's it's hard to know. Like right now, it's hard to get clear answers about that, uh, both because of the inherently chaotic nature of any battlefield, and in particular the war in Ukraine. Uh, both sides are maintaining pretty tight control over the media. Um, so I, I can only give some sort of like some speculative or general answers. Um, I think it's really important to start by saying um, then it's from what I can gather, it sounds like a lot of combatants on both sides of the current war in Ukraine um, don't want to be there. They don't want to be fighting and they are literally being driven onto the battlefield at gunpoint. Uh, where they're being like slaughtered in high numbers, like there's, we know there these these battles are extremely high casualty battles, and um, I think you know obviously that's that's really bad, uh, very hellish to use uh, my metaphor that I was using earlier, um, and being trapped uh, and and unable to escape um, violence. And then witnessing extreme physical destruction, um, you know, for example, like seeing your squad bait being vaporized by modern high-powered weaponry. These are both uh, factors that are likely to cause particularly severe PTSD. So I think we can assume that a lot of, for a lot of people, for a lot of the combatants, they're experiencing this as this like unbelievable hell that they're being forced into and um, are probably going to be extremely uh, traumatized by it. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll the, the the few the few people who survive will probably go on to have I guess very severe PTSD and or possibly um, significant war addictions, which war addiction is a theme that comes up over and over again in war writing. Um, on the other hand, uh, people who are combatants who are fighting voluntarily um, see it. Um, I think. Well, I'll jump back and say that the the previous like the war of the Donbass, the war that was happening in eastern Ukraine. Prior to the full-scale invasion, uh, I was I was sort of following along that with a, a certain amount of interest because of Prigozhin's involvement. Ellen Babchenko was also involved. Like they both became involved, but on opposite sides, and are still involved, but in opposite sides of the current war. Um, and has there once this sort of like element of larping of was it live action role playing? Uh, it did seem like a certain uh, like a certain element of game, like it was a game to them. Um, but at the same time. Uh, it was also like refighting World War II, and I think uh, a lot of people are refighting World War II right now in this war. Um, and as far as the current war, um, I think both a lot of people, it sounds like a significant number of people on both sides see it as this kind of uh, holy war um, and an existential struggle for national survival. Um, and that, I think, um, the, the existential struggle for national survival uh, certainly can 
also be seen in the Chechen war, but I think it's more severe now. Uh, the holy war aspect, um, you know, I think that a lot of Chechens felt that way. Uh, I don't think a lot of Russians felt that way about the Chechen wars, but it I, seems like a lot of Russians might be feeling that way about the current war. Um, and uh, I think a lot of combatants, again, a lot of some of the volunteers voluntary combatants as opposed to the people who are being herded onto the battlefield at gunpoint. Um, but a lot of the combatants on all sides, meaning the uh, Russian side, the Ukrainian side, and then we have um, all of these Western volunteers uh, who are fighting in like the, the foreign legion battalion kind of thing. Um, some of them seem or know for a fact, and, and I can sort of guess that there are others who feel this way, um, feel like they're finally fighting a good, just war, and this is their shot at redemption. Uh, certainly a lot of Western volunteers who fought in places like Iraq see, um, see this war as their big chance at redemption. Um, and I think that a lot, I don't know if a lot, but uh, some number of Russians feel that way too, either um, about, you know, this is their shot at redemption after what they did in Chechnya, or, for example, the uh, convicts who are being brought into the Wagner, uh, Wagner group are um, saying this is like their shot at social rehabilitation and redemption of the crimes that they committed. And, you know, now they can fight for their country and redeem themselves after being criminals. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that there's this complex mix of motivations and experiences. Um, I do think they're, they, but it also sounds like the the battlefields are the the current Ukrainian battlefield is so violent. Um, the weaponry is so high powered, and the destruction is just incredible. Um, and uh, I think that they're it sounds like they're experiencing it as just this sort of like unbelievable hell. And um, I've read some interesting interviews again with Western volunteers there who say that you know they a lot of people volunteered believing they were going in for a right they were supporting a righteous cause finally like finally they had this chance to fight for a righteous cause uh but the fighting was so unbearably brutal that only the people with really significant combat addictions could tolerate it that believing you were fighting for a righteous cause was not enough to keep people on the battlefield only um combat addiction or guns at your back are enough to keep you on the battlefield because the current battlefield in ukraine is so traumatic um, so I think that we're um, looking at a highly traumatic and hellish battlefield um, that has, you know, people fighting there um, for a variety of reasons. But uh, ultimately, the people who could actually who are actually staying and doing the fighting are there because they're compelled and they, they don't have anywhere better to go. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty sad. And um, I wish I could be more optimistic. I wish I could end this on an upbeat note. <laughs> Um, but I, I think I can't because everything I've heard about the Ukrainian battlefield is uh, is is very depressing. It's it's hard to even imagine or contemplate the the long term uh, human, physical, mental, you know, costs, uh, intergenerational, potentially. You know, speaking of of, of trauma and trauma theory. Um, so you know, as we wind down, uh, you know, I. I, I you know, I like to ask my guests, um, you know, what they're currently working on. Are you, are you working on something that takes you in a, a different direction after uh, dealing with something so heavy? 
oh, you know, I really should have like one of these downs. I should, I should do something about, I don't know, flapstick comedy or something like that. But no, <laughs> I'm currently working, uh, sort of, I'm in the early stages of another project on contemporary war literature. And I'm specifically interested in Polyboka and also uh, Svetlana Alexievich. And um, I'm also more and more interested in this question of combat addiction and war addiction and, um, you know, sort of what that means and how that's um, shown in text and, and the issue of um, uh, how anti-war materials often end up as like prime recruitment tools for war, in fact, which is something that the authors I survey in the current book mentioned. And... Um, uh, so some sort of, I'm, I'm interested in, like, this is still very sure early nebulous stages, but interested both in sort of like how, 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 how many war books and war movies and, and war, you know, war writing, war art, or generally that's supposed to be anti-war, how does it just make people want to make more war? Um, what What's going on with war addiction? And then how do these, um, particularly the female authors like Polykovsky and Alexievich, how do they kind of break this uh, paradigm and write stuff that is perhaps more genuinely anti-war? Like what alternative vision do they offer that perhaps can pull people a little bit away from war addiction? That sounds uh, so interesting. I'm working on a, a, a textbook on, on war and genocide, and one of the chapters is going to be on uh, you know comparatively thinking about war uh, propaganda and genocide propaganda. And uh, I'll definitely now have to uh, jot down to think about how anti-war propaganda may actually serve, um, you know, its unintended uh, purpose. So uh, thank you for that. And, and Elena, thank you so much for your time. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Thank you and take care. All right. You too. Thanks very much.